Today I'm speaking with Gary Muller. He runs an upscale bed and breakfast in the Hamptons in New York called the Millhouse Inn. And that's about all I could find out about him on the internet. Uh, he came as a, recommend, a, a very high recommendation from Chris Brogan, and uh, they're quite good friends. So, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's absolutely my pleasure, Nathan. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So, yeah, man, look, um, I'm really interested to, to delve into your story. So, how, and how you started the Millhouse Inn and, and how you, yeah, how, how, your, your journey as an entrepreneur. So can you tell us, first of all, about how you got your job? Certainly. Um, my wife and I were living in Jersey City. I had for the past 15 years owned a bunch of different restaurants and catering businesses, and we were pretty much feeding Wall Street. She was working for the British Broadcasting Company in Manhattan at the time, and the world started to change a little bit. And I guess we were entering the recession of the mid 90s. And we started to look for options. And I'd always wanted to do a bed and breakfast. Um, I, I dealt with so many great customers. And I always had this statement, if I had a hotel, I'd get to keep them longer. In the restaurant, they go home quicker. Even though in my building with 4,000 people, I would often see a guest six, eight, ten times a week because they'd be in for coffee, lunch, in, in for dinner after the close of, the, the, uh, of Wall Street. Um, so we looked around. And as I was downsizing, Sylvia was downsized. So there was a, a little adversity. Uh, and uh, I guess that's when you decide to do more things. So we looked. And uh, I had seen a place in the Hamptons that was for sale. We were summering in Montauk in a nice little cottage on the beach. And an inn right in the village, walking distance to everything came for sale. Uh, the owners had only been there about two years. And I wrote to a friend who was a broker in Vermont, Bill Oates, who's always handled inns. And I said, Bill, tell me the story. And he told me the story. And I was actually on my way to Chicago to the hotel and restaurant show. And while at Chicago, we wrote a letter of intent, a quick three-page business plan, contacted our local bank and Montauk and said, look, I want to do this. Um, that was in May, as the restaurant show always is. And on the 31st of July of that year, we bought the Millhouse Inn. Wow. And tell me, can we go back a little bit further about you mentioned that you've owned many different restaurants? Um, how, how did that all start? Can we can we go further further and, and lead up to how, how you've got running the Millhouse Inn? Certainly will do, Nathan. Um, I had the luxury, my, my family was on and off in the restaurant business, and certainly my grandparents, and the odd thing, they were in Jersey City. Back in the day, during and post-depression, my grandmother had taverns. So it was odd that I wound up back there. Uh, my father sold in Manhattan to restaurants. So as a six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old, as we all do if we can, I went to work with my dad. So I, I've often said I'm going to be 57 in August, and that means I've been in the hospitality business since I was just about old enough to hold up a knife and walk around in a kitchen. It's 50 years. Wow. Um, and I, I had opened my first restaurant in Manhattan, I guess it was 83 or 84, and being undercapitalized and not knowing the layout so well, it didn't mm. last too long. It did well. We were four blocks from Wall Street, and we did pretty well. And 
I took a couple of years off from that and worked for a while. Um, mm. And then an opportunity came back to walk back in. But it wasn't in Manhattan downtown. It was in Jersey City downtown. And an odd thing was happening. The 15-year lease, leases on the World Trade Center were turning over. And the big businesses that were there could get twice the space for half the price if they went to this beautiful downtown Jersey City where the Statue of Liberty was and overlooking Manhattan. And I found a little brownstone. Mm-hmm. And the company needed a partner, and they wanted a corporate chef. And I walked into that, and I'll make that story real short. Um, over the course of 10 years, that went to six restaurants. It went to a food manufacturing company. It went to a catering company where we catered Wall Street firms right on the floor of the uh, trading firms. Uh, we call that real food because we were determined not to serve the standard um, less than palatable food that we observed stockbrokers eating and actually cook for them right on the trading floors. Wow. So that was a 10-year stint in Jersey City. Everything was in within six or seven blocks of it uh, by plan. I could walk back and forth. I moved there almost immediately because it was a dedication. Oddly enough, in an environment where everything's closed, obviously, on Saturday and Sunday, and certainly then it turned into a ghost town on the weekends. The weekends were time to go in the restaurant and do the paperwork because Monday to Friday, I was in at four in the morning, and it was not unusual to be finished at 11.30 at night. But that's the restaurant business. Yeah, wow. This is, this is fascinating. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, how did you go about just starting more and more businesses? Well, I had a partner who was probably the oldest guy there. He'd, he'd been in Jersey City since it was basically a parking lot, and the reason Jersey City existed was there was a PATH train that came up in the midst of the World Trade Center. And when it left New Jersey, it was in downtown Jersey City. And there were two sets of stockbrokers in America, those people who traveled east to go home and those people who traveled west predominantly. And if you were traveling west, you were coming up in Jersey City. Uh, So real estate was inexpensive, which it is not now. And we listened. I mean, we, we listened to the brokers. What did they want? What did they need? There weren't enough restaurants. There wasn't enough for them. And certainly the big catering firms that would normally take care of Wall Street, they didn't want to come over there. They saw it as an imposition to take more money from a company they already serviced, which flabbergasted me at the moment. And I said, sure, we can feed you. And and one of the neatest stories was we took over feeding for this one company and basically a, a large big catering company said, you know, you're in transition. It's not worth our time to feed your staff. And they walked downstairs to our restaurant, which was brand new, 6,000 square feet on the Hudson River. Um, We were in debt uh, above our heads. And they said, can you feed us? And I said, yes, now, or or do I have a day? And he said, (laughs) Andy said to me, he goes, well, lunch would do for right now. I said, come sit down, let's have lunch and let's see what you need. And that led to the next day, signing a contract in, on a piece of paper that said we would produce 300 breakfasts and 300 lunches a day. And eventually we would do it upstairs in their kitchen because I said, I don't think that we want to bring food to you. I think we want to make food for you because it's going to be better. It's going to be healthier. Um, and then we borrowed money. We eventually bought some real estate. We borrowed more money. Um, one of the niche stories in the middle of it was I'd worked for the mayor of Jersey City's wife, Lynn Schundler. And did a lot of the food work for her charities. We were a bunch of food pantries. We started a cooking school for underprivileged kids, at-risk kids. And 
as my business was getting huge, I was running out of kitchen. So I went and looked for a big old warehouse and I had no money. At that point I was tapped out. Business was okay. And I said to Lynn Schundler, I said, I need a loan, but I said, I have an idea. I was approached by a company in Vermont called RSVP to produce a pizza product. And what we're doing in the cooking school, these at-risk kids, something that hadn't been done before, we're teaching them to cook, but they need practical. I'm going to take on producing the pizza because now I can add a contingent to these kids' education. We not only teach them to cook, but we give them money because they can actually produce a product. So we're fulfilling at least two of the requirements of getting somebody from an at-risk situation into a healthy, wholesome environment where they make money. So good stuff came to me. She walked to the EDC in town with me in hand and said, he needs a loan and he needs it tomorrow. I, you know, it, the money came in, we paid the money back, we transferred it to a bank, but that project wouldn't have happened, Nathan, not, it, not without doing good things for good people. And it paid us back because we were able to help these kids. We were able to serve our businesses in Wall Street better. And honestly, we hired, this was our hiring pool. These kids off the street that were hooligans and maybe on their way to jail, maybe not, um, they became our employees. So we did good, I think, and, and, and good was done to us. And money is just, it, it's the other part of the whole business. You do the business because you have this idea you want to do a good thing. And in the kitchen, we're always teaching. I'm by trade. I'm, I always say to Chris, I'm just the cook. And I am still the cook. And yeah, that's a Steven Seagal line for a movie. And I always laugh and I love it. But we are. And as cooks, we train. We teach. It's what we love to do. We like to take somebody who likes food and say, come in the kitchen. You're going to work really, really hard. And I'm going to teach you everything you need to know. Mm. Yeah, no, look. Um, okay, look, there's a, there's a lot of stuff I, I'd like to unpack there because... Yeah, no, I. Uh, this is this is really interesting. So, you you mentioned that uh, at one point you you had no money. H- how did you cope? Like, how well, did you keep going? If if you don't get paid a lot, it's a little bit easier. Um, <laughs> I I, <laughs> I I was walking to work, so I didn't need a car for a while. My credit cards didn't, were not pretty, that's to say the very least. But the guests were there. I mean, people were coming in the restaurants. We were always sort of making ends meet. And even in that little bubble that happened there, because realizing the last big restaurant, the leases were signed in 89. And then that was a huge issue with the economy right after that. And we made do. We, we, we utilized all the business tactics. I mean, I went back to the landlord at the time, it was a big insurance company, and I said, our rents were supposed to be based on an occupied building with high-end Wall Street types. Your building's 50% unoccupied. I think we're going to go backwards to the original agreement until you can fill your building. They weren't happy with the conversation, but for us, it was a make or break, and eventually they consented because we provided a great restaurant. People were happy with us. And we were fastidious about what we did. We, we purchased well and we were careful with our staffing. And it's always about the numbers and it's always about making it work. And we looked for other businesses. Without a doubt, that little bit with Wall Street and that other building is what pulled it all out for us. There was a moment there where I said, mm, I think I need to figure out where I'm going to work next because the business isn't going to be here. 
and this is going to be a terrible set of tumbling dice. And then all of a sudden, three huge money brokering firms waltzing to Jersey City. I got to talk to all three of the physical managers of their floors. I got to talk to the CFO of one of the greatest companies in the world. What a brilliant guy. And he took me under his wing. And for five years, we had a fantastic relationship. He paid me, but I think I got more out of it from the education. But these businesses, which I know certainly only came about and I never could have serviced them without that warehouse that came from doing the charitable thing, it never would have worked. We certainly would have fallen down. But those days when I thought it was all going to go down, I said, you know what? We're going to go down smiling. So we were actually using the kitchens in the restaurants to teach the kids on the weekends and in the evenings. Then they would go and they would learn the bookwork during the day up at the food pantries. And it just magically happened. The economy got a little bit better and we paid attention to our guests. We picked up a couple of accounts in Manhattan, which was the big time, um, one of which was Cantor Fitzgerald. Um, I was their largest off-premise caterer. I did a lot of events, six, seven, eight hundred people, very highbrow, expensive events with a great bunch of guys. Um, they taught me, just listening to them, working with them, taught me. Uh, so, you know, we made it through. And the restaurant business is always about those, those high-end numbers. You've got your fixed costs, but the variables will kill you. And if your food is taken care of, you can keep your food costs down and present great food. And you teach your team. We taught all of our staff that you need to be fastidious. You need to be economical. You're done. Go help the dishwashers finish. Get everybody out of here. Keep the payroll down. Finish the day well. And everybody was on the same team. I mean, I, I don't, Nathan, I don't know if there really is a business, any business. I think it's all people. I don't think I ever sold food. And I know I certainly don't sell rooms right now. Um, but I know the one thing that's for sure, it's people. It's all about the people. It's the only real asset you ever have is your team, your staff. You fail immediately without them and you succeed so well with them. So they did it. Maybe I was an example. Maybe it was because I was there before them every morning and I was still there when they went home at night. Maybe it was because I cared about their problems as much as I did about mine. Um, maybe it was because I lent the money when I didn't even have any money myself, when somebody was in a sticky widget. Or when I had a guy whose green card was failing and I took him over to a lawyer I knew who would help him. And that story goes on and on because, again, without the people, there's, there is no business whatsoever. I don't care what you do. Even if you're a solo entrepreneur, um, there's people you need to talk to. There's people that are in your world and they're important. They're more important than the actual thing you do because your thing will not succeed without their input, without their help, without them taking you forward. Yeah, look, uh, uh, this is, I, I, that was a really captivating story, Gary. Um, there's, there's and I a, didn't have a house. <laughs> What's that? Sorry? <laughs> and, I didn't, and I didn't have a good suit, which I, when I needed to go to a meeting, <laughs> one of my clients was a tailor in the adjacent mall, and I traded off a bunch of lunches for a couple of suits. <laughs> I said, I'm not really going to go into these meetings in my whites, although it would have been okay as a chef. Mm. But I said, I think these Wall Street guys are going to have a little bit more respect for me if I know how to put a tie on. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, yeah. Look, by the sounds of it, you you've seen seen you've gone through thick and thin, and that's and that and that's the real that's the real story of an entrepreneur's journey. Often, often we just see the end product. So, um, you mentioned about business tactics. You said you use standard 
business tactics to get through. Can you tell me a bit more about some of those? Well, again, you have to work the numbers. I mean, one of the most important things in business is always those people you don't want to talk to, being your accountant and your lawyer. Mm. But I kept them tight and close. Um, they ate in the restaurants all the time. They were local. They became friends. They became investors, whether they wanted to or not, because I didn't pay them. Um, <laughs> eventually, I did. But for the most part, it was in everybody's children get married. <laughs> well, that wedding is free. Now it's mm. going to cost me bigger. Um, mm. But that's if you don't make backward steps, if you don't make mistakes in your business, if you can actually concentrate on the thing you do. So I always say to my lawyer, and I just got a new one, actually, Rachel Rogers from Chris Brogan. And Rachel's fantastic. And in getting to her, I, one of the things I said is you're going to always hear from me before. I'm never going to call you later after I've muddied the waters and ask you to get me out. I think those are probably two of the best things. Um, we also always looked at what we were going to do and said, and we had a statement, the day we signed that piece of paper is the day we either made or lost money. What we do with it afterwards, well, it'll be because we're good at what we do. We'll do well. But if we made a bad decision when we committed, well, then we're going to fail. It really doesn't matter how good we are. The best restaurant in the worst location, for whatever reason that location is bad, will fail. If people don't travel there, if you can't get staff there. So those are three principles. I mean, it's always work with the professionals. It's always quite simply make sure before you pull the pin that it's correct. Do, do that analysis of tactics and planning ahead of time. Then go do the work and just keep working. Um, restaurants, I mean, hey, I could tell you how to cook food really well in three sentences. Make sure you buy really, really, really seriously good food. Then take care of that food. If it's a piece of fish, clean it, wash it, dry it, pack it in plastic, pack it in ice and keep it cold till you cook it. And when you cook it, don't do much to it because that piece of fish will be perfect. So, I mean, basic tenets of cooking were always followed. Um, we had a brigade. Our cooks loved each other. Um, our staff ate whatever they wanted. It didn't matter because they're our staff. I can't send a waiter on the floor if he hasn't eaten a Dover sole. If he hasn't had a porterhouse ever, he's never going to tell you how good it is. Um, now, if I don't put the best liquors behind the bar, I'm serving a, a, an A clientele. I've got to find the best things. I've continually got to find the best things. And, hey, I listened. And what the clients told me was it's not just the best, but it's one-upmanship. So I want to see what's new. What's new in the best? And if you can be the guy who always shows them what's new in the best in that specific environment, hey, this is a great new vodka. Hey, this is a fantastic new beer. People like it. You know, I mean, your house, well, you always keep your house clean. That's important. I mean, I mean, I've always been in a brick and mortar world. Um, so your facilities are important. They're impeccable. Um, one of the guys that I respect so much in the hotel business is Horst Schultz. Um, started Ritz-Carlton, now Capella. Um, had the pleasure to sit and meet with him and talk with him for just a brief few seconds. But he only said one thing, no defects. And we followed that in the restaurant. Nothing can be broken. No defects ever. Always has to work. The guests should really not even notice it. I've got a great friend who's in Disney who told me a story. Um, he's one of their corporate chefs. And he said, watch the little kid spill his drink and then, of course, spill his popcorn. Within 12 to 15 seconds, the popcorn and the drink were moved away. 
a new popcorn and drink were on its way. And another employee had a brand new shirt that he handed to the mother and said, here, give him a shirt. He'll feel better than with the wet one on. And I'm like, wow, invisible service. And that per- they're, they're customers forever. They're certainly customers for life. Um, I mean, one of the things we did with Wall Street, if you've ever looked at the stock markets on the day before or the day after 4th of July, not much happens. Well, that's because no one's there. Um, but there are employees, and those employees feel kind of bad because you're working on a holiday. You're not with your family. Well, we'd march upstairs with prime rib and lobster, things that weren't paid for. I'd call the facilities manager and say, how much beer can I have and at what time? You know, it's an early day. Market might close at 1.15 or 1 o'clock. It's at 11.30. Bring up cases of Heineken. It's fine. Or whatever have you. We took care of them, and it made a difference. And they were, the, they were not the managing directors. They were the employees. But we cared. We cared that they smiled, too, that they had a good day. So, yeah, listen to that single customer all the time and hear what he has to say. He's going to tell you the story. Write it down. As I said before, it was great writing down what I wanted to talk to you about. And I looked at my own notes and I said, well, I might never have written some of this down if not for wanting to talk to Nathan. Yeah, look, Chris, uh, sorry, sorry, Gary, um, you strike me as someone that's that, that is really, really a people person, and and just along your way, if you if you hadn't have used your people skills, befriend like you know, and not intentionally befriending people, just befriending people because you never know where where it may happen and, and what what may happen, and just you're just being an overall really kind and and giving person that that's led you to where you are today. Do you, do you believe that 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 is a core element of that? Like that that's just what strikes me. That's that's absolutely key, Nathan. I'm going to give you a little story from the old days when we first got into the inn. One thing that happened, which was ironic, we left Jersey City and we opened up the inn. And I was still going back and forth. I was still doing two or three days in Jersey City and four days uh, in East Hampton. So obviously I was working eight days a week. uh, And Sylvia was manning the fort seven days a week at the inn. But I walked outside on like the second or third day I was there, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is funny. There's guests staying in the inn, which I obviously didn't book them. I just bought the place. But I knew them. They were Wall Street guys. Wow. And they're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, huh? I just bought it. Well, just a little while later, a gentleman comes in and wants to book his wedding. He's 60-some-odd years old. I don't know who he is. And he fills the inn for later in that season. I think it was that October. Big wedding. South of the highway, further lane, um, big shots. And we don't necessarily know who's going to check in, but, well, then we did. And in two of the rooms, one was Lee Iacocca and the other was George Frame, who at the time was the head of the Jaguar division. And I was, okay, these are different kinds of important people. Mm. And I got to sit with them in the dining room and talk. And I'm a cigar guy. It was the first time anybody ever smoked a cigar or has since smoked a cigar in the end because it's no smoking. But when Lee wanted to smoke a cigar, I said, we're going to continue this conversation on the porch and I will find a Cohiba. And we (laughs) sat and talked. And George Frame looked at me and he said, and this is the point of the story, I guess, what you do here is kind of like airline food. And Lee looked at him and he said, well, you know, we still have to be here for a couple more days. George, it's not really good to insult him. He goes, no, Lee, you're old. Remember when the airlines first were there, when you got on the plane, there was no food except what you asked them to cook for you? 
So if you wanted fried eggs, go for potatoes and filet mignon. That's what they made you. He goes, that's kind of what it's like because they care. It's like how we try to make a car because we care. And I go back to talking about the people. There's an analogy that someone just gave to me maybe a month ago and I don't know where I got it. And I've been sharing it with everybody. Mm -hmm. You are the six to ten people that are around you. So the brighter, smarter, more intelligent, uh, off the wall, odd, or in broken speak, the freaks with this mm. new book. Yeah. Those people yeah. count. They all matter. They make you better just by associating. So, I mean, what did we do? Well, we solved people's problems in, in when we fed them because they were used to getting bad food. Um, I tell you a story about bad food. I walked into a big firm, a thousand people or so, and I said, I need a key card and I need access for a week. What are you going to do for a week? You're not paying me and I'm not going to eat your food. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to walk around. And three weeks later, I walked into the managing director who was a partner to his office and I said, here's two proposals for you. I said, that's what it's going to cost you to have me feed you. He goes, that's more than we're paying. I said, and that's what you're going to save. Where'd you get that number from? Well, every day your food company brings in food, no one eats it. And then your thousand or so stockbrokers, well, they run around and order food from outside. So the amenity that you gave your people because you cared enough to feed them, they don't like because it's not good. They're not going to do that anymore. And the best part isn't the money you save because when you add the two, I'm cheaper. The best part is that their concentration is going to be on their job. There might be a little hoo-ha and hooray about that we're serving great stuff and um, my team was always taught to listen. So, Nathan, if you said, hey, how come you don't have fish and chips? Somebody said, um, we'll figure out how to do that, maybe not tomorrow, but the next day. And it was on the food. It was on the menu then. Mm. Uh, but we listened. I walked around and I talked to a couple of hundred people and I watched boxes of food come in and I watched stuff go in the garbage can. And I said, uh, this is a no-brainer. This is easy. We make an amenity amenity. We make people happy. Those people were thrilled when we fed them. And they were thrilled until budgets got cut, which sent us to East Hampton. But that's the other part of the story. Ah, okay. <laughs> ah, so can you tell, tell us that other part of the story in a short, summarized way? What, what sure. exactly happened? Well, I started selling off things because I just had this feeling. Um, I had a really big project I wanted to do, and I'd spent, oh, I think about a year flying back and forth to most of the small little towns in the UK. We had this idea, and it was, wasn't me and my partners. It was me and a couple of brokers. We were going to create traditional brew pubs, and we were going to bring our own cooperage in because we wanted real beer. Um, Budweiser wasn't cutting it for anybody. Um, and uh, we looked at food. And I mean, I walked into the places like Guinness and sat and talked with people. And then John Courage and all the small brewers that were even smaller than that. And I think we went to Scotland twice and we talked to some people about getting some scotches that they didn't necessarily have enough to sell to the wholesalers. Well, the economy, again, was not my friend. And these guys who were going to invest couldn't, and this was going to be a big deal, and it was going to be pretty special. But I said, you know, sometimes you got to know when you say no. That's probably a great lesson for everybody in business. Saying no is really important, and I said, no, we're not doing it. So we started selling more things off, closing things, 
most of our Wall Street accounts went away in a day. Um, so literally, I, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is advice for people. Never put all your apples in one basket. And that's so true. Because all of a sudden, when you lose everything, and the bad part wasn't that I was okay with losing it. My businesses were structured well. I couldn't keep everybody. That was the heartbreaker. I had to lay people off. I spent two weeks on the phone finding jobs for my key people and for anybody else I could. Just calling everybody I knew in Manhattan and everybody I knew in New Jersey and finding places for these talented guys to go who'd helped me so well. So Sylvia had always wanted to spend more time on the East End. It's a beautiful place to take pictures, 270 degrees surrounded by water, pristine beaches. It's not necessarily the Hamptons that you see on the news. It, it, the other part of the Hamptons is, and, and Nathan, when you come be my guest at the Millhouse Inn, and you will anytime you're in the United States, stay with me, please. I'll take you on a, on a busy weekend, and I'll show you empty beaches, which is really cool. We need a little four-wheel drive, but that's fine. Sylvia said, we could live out there. And I said, okay. So at that point in time, I had a few pennies and still a few left, but not a lot. Um, and I'd managed to buy a couple of pieces of real estate that weren't very expensive and they were mortgaged to the hilt. But then I looked back and I said, wow, the economy has been kind to real estate. There is an adage. They are not making any more dirt. And I said, let's let them sit. And we borrowed, and I had found that piece of property with that inn that people had started. And um, fortunate for me, the couple that started the inn and renovated it a little bit decided they didn't like people. So they really needed to leave yesterday. And we went through that whole thing that we talked about before, and we walked in the door, and I said, okay, now I'm here. What do we do? How do we make it better? How do we take apart this business? Because it's not a restaurant. We serve breakfast. And I said, well, we're going to take away everything that I don't like. We're going to get rid of the chintz and the lace and the doilies. We're going to get rid of the communal shared tables, which now is back in vogue in restaurants. I just ate in a place in uh, Newport, Rhode Island that was fantastic oyster bar that had these big, long shared tables. But it also had regular tables. And we're going to take away that innkeeper who pronounces to you what you'll do today. And we're going to create customer service. And we're going to make a breakfast that... Zagat's gave us a 28 for a couple of times because we're going to cook real food and we're not going to limit it to just breakfast stuff. And yeah, there's going to be lobster in there and there's going to be tuna in there and there's going to be sausages we make and bacon we get cured for us by somebody really special. And then we're going to start to redecorate. And I guess what I figured out was if I wanted me to stay in the inn, I had to rebuild the inn for me. And I looked south of the highway and I said, from the people I've met, I look at 10,000, 15,000 square foot homes with four bedrooms. Obviously, people come visit them, but they don't have guest rooms. So they need guest rooms for their guests. So we started getting bigger. We started breaking down walls and making suites. We were lucky enough to buy the house behind us and build three rooms that were 1,000 square feet, 900 square feet, 800 square feet. And I bought that house and in three weeks with two friends, got it open for the season. Because if I didn't get it open for the season, I had some financial woes coming to me that were going to be big. But we did. And it, it wasn't finished as well as we wanted, but it was planned. It was planned. There were two tractor trailer sitting outside with furniture and all the stuff that needed to go in. And we had the final plans drawn. And I had the 
intermediate plan drawn. And well, the summer proved to my bank that I could make it happen with the snap of my fingers if I needed to, even though I didn't sleep for three weeks. And guests raved. I mean, they absolutely raved. And we listened. We sat there and we listened. We didn't talk. What do you want? And what I want is really, really big tubs and steam showers. And I want lots of TVs. Kids don't do those things. And I want service that's invisible but always available. Well, that's easy to do. We're here all the time. And I think I got a review that chastised me for somebody at my front desk not being right there. But then the review said, but the minute I needed something, someone showed up. And I'm like, presto, that's what we were working for. Because you might not necessarily want to talk to anybody. But when you need something, someone's always available. Um, and then we listened more. Um, we ripped apart every square foot of 10,000 square feet over the course of about nine years. And mind you, they had done quite a, a decent job with the brick and mortar before, but the decor was not. And we furnished it the way we would furnish our home. You know, and, and one of the nice things somebody said, and I think it was uh, Architectural Digest, wow, they printed a picture and they said, you've out Ralph Lauren Ralph Lauren. Because I, I, I designed a room and I called it Beach Hamp and it was white on white on white on white. And it was comfortable floors and faded out glass. And I just said, I would stay there. That would make me comfortable. So that worked. And then, then we realized something about 10 years into it, nine years into it. We were in our third expansion. And I said, we're losing guests. So he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, we're losing guests. They're buying houses and they're renting houses. She goes, well, you can't do anything about them buying a house. I said, I can make sure that anybody comes to visit them stays with me. She goes, they already are. I said, okay, that one's good. So we bought Greybarn Cottage. And I said, I'm going to build you a home in the Hamptons, which was always our moniker from day one, that the Mill House Inn is your home in the Hamptons. And it's going to be like your home. We're going to worry about you the minute you call us on the phone. We're not going to take a reservation. We're going to care about your travels. And we're going to worry about you when you get home, that you got home safe, that if there was something you didn't get to do or something you needed, did you want some lobsters flown in from Montauk? We'll get them for you. Did your little girls forget? Yeah. In Australia, we had a couple who went home, and we've always had these big, beautiful black dogs that were monikered after our dog, Corey, who was a Gordon Setter. And they went home, and the girls were crying. And the lady emailed me when she got home. They wanted those black dogs. The next day, literally as fast as the mail would get it, four of them were posted to them. And she's like, what do I owe you? I said, a picture of your girl smiling would be great. And I promise not to put it on the internet. Because it matters. And they've been back. I mean, and they've been back. And then with Greyborn, it's like, I'm not going to tell you who's staying there right now. But you've watched them on TV. I know you have. I know Chris has too. And I won't tell Chris either. And he keeps asking me. But it's something we don't do. We never let our guests know. But the first thing he said is, is it all going to be safe and are we going to be secure? I said, well, my general manager used to be the head of security for Swan and Dolphin and I hired him for a reason because you guys matter. You're our guests. You absolutely matter. The next morning he woke up and there was a bottle of scotch and a really neat bottle of bourbon in there and just a little bit of a note. And I haven't been there in a while, but it was a note from me and it just said, thanks. Because I'm, I'm thrilled that you wanted to stay with me. And they booked for a month. And they're going to be back. But the only reason they're coming back isn't the room. It's not the accommodations. It's because there's people there who care about them. People that care about their kids, that their kids have great activities, that we know the right beaches to send them to. 
you know, if your if your kids are three and four, the ocean beach is a little daunting. But I can send them to a bay beach where the water's ten degrees warmer. Set you up with a picnic, some water toys, and those waves aren't present, and your kids get a great influx to the beach. And those same kids, eight years later, who may stay with us again, are sitting there surfing in the ocean in Montauk at Ditch Plains. That's Trey cool. That makes me smile. Yeah, that that was our initial thing that I said earlier. We get to keep the guests for longer. Yeah, forever with some of them because I've got kids staying with me when their parents started with me 16 years ago. I've got a guy that could barely afford my cheapest room 16, 15 years ago when we first got there. Now he rents out the whole house and rooms at the inn so he brings his family because that's the way he wants to entertain his family because he goes, if they came to my apartment in Brooklyn, it would be a disaster. I can't cook. I can't entertain. But I bring everybody here and I look good. I said, dude, that's our job. We're supposed to make you look good. And then he and I sit there and we have a scotch. You know, and, and it's not the way of the old B&B. It's not that old kind of hospitality. We're not having the scotch because I'm forcing him to. He's asking me to. Just like Iacocca said, you have to smoke a cigar with me. Okay. Okay, I will. So, yeah, it, that's pretty much the transgression. That's kind of where we are, Nathan, right now. Um, we've decided to always stay small. I've had so many offers to go other places and do other things. I actually wrote up something for another bunch of people. They're Hollywood people who wanted to do something in Italy. And I said, I'll write it up for you. I don't know if I want to do it, but I'll help. And they didn't understand that. They said, why would you help? I said, well, come stay for free or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's not about the money. If you actually like what we do that much that you asked me, I may not want to be part of it because I'm 60 years old. I want to spend some time with my wife and I want to pay attention to my business. But they couldn't understand it. And then all of a sudden they got it. They said, that's what you do. I said, that's exactly why. It wouldn't matter what a guest asked for, if we were able to or capable of. And I, my GM always says it. He goes, as long as it's not illegal, it's done immediately. If it's impossible, I'll get to it tomorrow. But that's hospitality. I mean, that's that's what the mentors taught me. You know, when, when you, I talked about Horst Schultz before, I mean, just absolutely brilliant. I mean, the first guy that I ever listened to was Tony Robbins. And when I listened to him that many years ago, the first book, when Nightingale Conant was there, and I said, okay, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You absolutely can do whatever you choose to do. But you may not sleep a lot, and there's not going to be a whole lot of extracurricular activities there's not going to be a whole lot of fun in the other stuff. But if you love what you do, that's the fun. Inc. Magazine said something just a little while ago, about a month ago. And it was, I don't remember the whole thing, but it was about entrepreneurs. And it said, if you put them together in a room, you're not going to understand the conversation because they're all going to be talking about business stuff. And you're going to think they're working. And they're going to look at you and say, oh, no, it's what we do. We like this. I mean, I'm having a blast talking to you and I'm doing all the talking. So I'm going to shut up for a while and let you talk. Yeah, no, no, no. This is, this is awesome. Like we're channeling so much gold, like all the questions that I wanted to ask you, you just answered them. Like, you know, what did you have to sacrifice? Um, how do you market your business? Well, it's, it's pretty obvious how you're getting through people through the door. Um, and, and it's how you always have, you care. Um, you know, uh, you've told us, all sorts of things. So no, it don't. This is this is. Uh, I'm I'm really enjoying this conversation, and that's 
I, I guess, and you would probably attest to this too, that's the key to a great conversationalist. It's what you don't say. True enough. True enough. That there's, there's a lot about my business that doesn't matter. It's a, uh, uh, you brought up a great point, and I, and I didn't write this one down, but this one is ever-present in my mind. We never, ever sell a room. We never worry about the paint being right. We never worry about everything working. That's a given. That's just absolutely a given. And I don't care what you do. If it's in this blazingly wonderful new world, which I adore, where everybody, and I'm going to quote him again, can be a freak and you can start your own business and you don't have to have a quadrillion dollars to do it. Well, be damn good at the thing you do. I mean, exemplary at the thing you do. But then it's a matter of your personal relationship with the people you want to serve that's going to make the difference because there's a lot of other people that are doing what you do real well doesn't matter who you are i'm comfortable talking to you nathan there's not many people that make me this comfortable this is a it's a great conversation so yeah you're good at what you do your magazine's great but you're a pleasure to speak with and that matters and that's what they can all do we had a um this is an old old story too and i was these were the days when Sylvia and I went to work at seven in the morning and we finished at 11 at night every day. And I got a phone call and it was a guest. He was from Germany. Hadn't stayed with us before. And as I normally did and against all hotel selling principles, I always said, so why are you traveling and how can I help you? And after a 20 minute conversation about what he wanted to do and such, and I explained to him what he could do. And I said, you didn't answer my first question now. Why are you traveling? Oh, a friend of mine said to stay at the Millhouse Inn. Well, that's really nice. You were traveling to New York, so you decided to stay with us. He goes, no, you have it wrong. I'm traveling to New York from Germany to stay in your inn. Well, I almost fell off the seat in the office because we were brand new. We didn't know if our shtick was working quite well yet. And I smiled over the phone so much, and I said, you know something? You made my year. Actually, you made the first 28 or 29 months I've been here just by saying that. I'm going to be smiling the minute you walk in the door just as much as I smile with everybody. But thank you so much. And for whoever recommended us that well that you're traveling that far, thank them too. Because it shows that when we care, it makes a difference. Um, we've got a, a, a new statement, Nathan, that we've been making. And it's funny. I, I get all these social media things and I read them all and they come from all the hotels and all the bloggers on hotels and on what you should do and our hospitality um, marketing firm that we don't think does such a great job anymore, but because they're falling behind times, but it was talking about rewards programs. And I'm like, well, yeah, we started one a year and a half ago and it's called Lux cards and it's not a rewards program. It's an awards program. And we give out these beautiful cards from a company called Moo, M-O-O, super mm. thick, beautiful paper crafted in an old Adirondack factory. And they're worth a hundred bucks. Tell me how many you want. I'll send you a thousand tomorrow. Give them out. It's um, giving you an award for wanting to stay with us, for wanting to recommend us, because it matters. There's no caveat. There's no rules. There's no regulations. You don't have to punch a card. You don't have to tell me I'm the only place you're going to stay. You don't have to do anything. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we do that makes a difference. I mean, our, our front desk agents, I don't have a good name for them yet, but we're working on it. We stole a horse for a while, and we called them personal assistants, but we're going to come up with a better name. But you might be there with your kids and find out that you're going to dinner and one night out of your five nights, you really like a babysitter. 
And one of my girls that's at the desk is going to say, I'll take care of it because you know me already. But she's going to ask your children what they like to eat, and she's going to go out and buy dinner. And I've seen them do it out of their own pocketbook, for which I scolded them and said, we'll certainly give you the money. But they brought the kids dinner in and rented them a movie, put an Apple TV in the room um, or an Amazon Fire right now, which is pretty cool, and watched the movie with them. And they paid attention to what the kids wanted. And the parents were blown away. Did you make them do that? I said, no, that's not in the manual because we don't have a manual. We tell them to care. And if they figure out something, tell everybody else what they figured out because that would help. And yeah, we'll eventually write it all down, which is something they're doing right now. They're writing down a list of everything we do because we're not quite sure of how many things we do. But it makes a difference. You have dogs in your room. We always take pets. We always take dogs. Always have. Wow. And if your dog barks, and people are so attracted to animals, and your dog barks, somebody will go back and rescue him from the room and bring him up to the office and hang out with him until you come back. We're not going to tell you we do that. We just do it. We make it work. You know, we make your trip special. We know the beach where you can take your dog too. So he has fun too, and he's not stuck on an ocean beach with people saying you don't belong here. Yeah, no, look um – I can definitely, yeah, I can definitely see how how you've got to where you are today, and and anybody listening to this, it's it's quite evident. Um, I'm curious around your team, your team building. Um, now we have to work towards wrapping things up, but I have a couple more questions still. Sure. And you mentioned that you wouldn't be where you are today if it wasn't for the people, and and that essentially is your business, people. Um, so I'm curious, when you look to hire and build teams, what, 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 what are some core elements that, that you, can, you can tell me about that you believe builds a good team and what do you look for in people? I'm going to talk about the current situation because, again, as you said, it's getting late and you have me as long as you want, Nathan. I, I'm loving the conversation. But oh, so am I, so am I. East Hampton is a bit different than Jersey City. Um, because we're at the end of an island and it has a huge, huge high cost of living. Um, so the population of people who are going to work in a hotel, not, not a lot. And we let them know that they matter. But I don't hire people based on what they know how to do or where they've been. When I talked about Jay before and the fact that he worked at Swan and Dolphin, that wasn't why he was hired. Jay was hired because we had a very long conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, I was interviewing you and you passed. And I looked at him and I said, well, thank you very much. I'm glad I passed the audition. The Beatles said that too, didn't they? I said, so can you start tomorrow and do me a favor? Lose the tie, put on a pair of shorts and a nice shirt and some, some sneakers and come on in and we'll start making people change the way they think about hotels. And we do it with everybody. I mean, his wife is now our assistant general manager. Why? Well, Courtney said to me one day, she goes, I want to have a baby, but I don't know how I can do it in my business because they won't ever let me have time. And I said, oh, come work for me. Well, how does that change everything? I said, I don't know. Do whatever you want. Literally, do whatever you want. I said, your husband matters to me. You matter to me. I love you guys. So you can have a child and they do. And they have time for their child. They schedule it whenever they need to because it makes a difference. And dedication I couldn't buy the dedication with money. There's no way. I buy it by caring. 
I mean, I remember every birthday and every anniversary. I remember every slip and fall and, and, and every sprain. I remember every kid's birthday. It's in my calendar. It's important. Not to give something of worth, but to show that I actually care because I do. Um, I, I delve into healthcare audaciously because I'm like, these people need to have this and it needs to be better. It can't, they can't be stuck with acceptable. Um, when we feed our people, I mean, I, I, I look at my chefs and I say, they come first, actually. The staff comes first. Sure, we feed the customers. We love our guests. They're our family, too. But these people here, some of them, that's the best meal they're going to get of the day because you guys are professional cooks. They don't get to go out to a restaurant. Make sure it's really good. And I, one time someone said, do you have a food cost? No, nah, there's no food cost. There's no food cost for the guests and there's no food cost for the staff. And in fact, once every couple of months, circulate a piece of paper around and ask them what they like to eat and include it because it matters. And pay them for their breaks and pay them far better than even for a housekeeper. Establish a very high minimum wage for that job. And then teach. And we don't look for people who are in hospitality. It doesn't matter. Uh, have we gotten excellent housemen and housekeepers because they've worked elsewhere? Well, they hired themselves. I have a completely new team over the last 12 months, and they all hired themselves because they called their friends and said, this is a nice place to work. And they're working harder. My office staff, they're like family. I mean, people come back and they, and they cook dinner for themselves at night when we don't serve any food. And they hang out in the office and have dinner and they talk hotel. But not the business part. They talk the guest part, which is what counts. How do we do something more cool? So, yeah, I hire from the inside. I don't care what you don't know how to do. I've always said my job is one thing. Beyond the owner's position, I'm quoting Brogan again, but beyond the owner's position, my job is to do what everybody else can't or won't. I won't chastise an employee for not getting something. Because if I realize they just can't, I'll do it. It's okay. I'll come back and teach you later. But if it's something that you're not going to be good at or you just don't like it, it just became my job. Because I work for you. I work to make you better every day. That's my job. To, not to sit there and look at reports and count money in the bank, but to make sure that my staff has a great place to go, that they have a future to be there. And that their job is cool. And, and that they're not bogged down doing BS reports and sending stuff in and filling things out. We don't do much of that. You know, we, we know. We, we see the guest smiles. We know when we're doing well. And yeah, do I do the other part? Of course, I'm never going to tell anybody new or suggest to them that they shouldn't pay attention to all those things that you need to do. Yes, you do. But your staff, Tony Heisch says it really well. Put them in a place where they are having such a damn good time, they're going to love it. And then if I look at one of my favorite quotes in the entire world, um, just without a doubt, if you can't come in on Saturday, uh, you don't need to come in on Sunday either. Um, yeah, that was Steve Jobs. And I think what he meant wasn't, I want you to work seven days a week. What he meant was, I want you to care so damn much about it that you can't put it down. That doesn't mean you have to be here, but it means that when you're sitting home all of a sudden, and literally everybody that works for me sits there with a piece of paper and a pencil by their bed because they wake up in the middle of the night and say, wow, I could do that. And they write a note. And then they take a picture of the note. And we've had these back and forth at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning where somebody woke up and thought of something and then texted it to everybody or emailed it to everybody. And everybody just chimed in. And then I, they've woken me up and I'm saying, okay, now all of you go back to bed. 
thank you very much for thinking. But yeah, because they're jazzed about it. They like the thing they do. So yeah, you don't have a business. And I think I said before, even if you're a solo entrepreneur, well, first off, you have an accountant and you have an attorney. You need to have them take care of those people, learn from them, ask them tons and tons and tons of questions before somebody sues you for copyright infringement, because it'd probably be a good thing. And then find six to 12 really smart people and contribute, give. Um, I think one of the things that you and I had talked about in email was what would I tell somebody else to do? And, and I think it probably, I touched on that a lot, but what I would also tell them to do is when you print this, Nathan, put my email address in there, email me. I have time. I don't need to sleep. If you've got a question about business, if you're thinking about something, even if it's not hospitality, email me because I'll learn far more than the value I'll give you back in an answer, but I'll give you a great answer. I'll pick up the phone and call you because I, I like business. I mean, business is really, really cool, especially when it's done on this level, not the corporate level because that one I don't understand. This one I think is genuine. It's real. It's loving. It's emotional. It in, in, doesn't matter what you do, whether you publish a magazine, whether you have an inn or a restaurant. Restaurants are so cool for the social aspect of talking to everybody out there. You can build a whole restaurant with Twitter. You can guarantee the success of an entire restaurant with Twitter. And I watched people do it. I'm in Provincetown now. And I watched these three young guys and they just opened the place. And I watched one guy go over there and tweeting back and forth between guests and guests coming in and telling him that lobsters just came in off the boat and clams are coming in in an hour. And I've watched this guy's place for four days. It's full all day from breakfast to the end of dinner. It's little. It's special. And all three of those guys care so much about their guests and their smiles are ear to ear. Mm. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, the underlying message from, from I, I'm getting, and look, I, I'm going to take my customer service to a whole new level after speaking to you. Well, I, I, I've talked about that at length, and, and I always wonder, what do I want to do when I grow up? And, and you know, what's the next thing? Well, again, I keep mentioning, but Mr. Brogan told me to write a book. And he, he named it for me at one of his owner's sessions. He called it Hospitality Without Borders. And I said, I want to take it further. I said, I want to offer like effectual, cheap consulting to explain to people that hospitality is part of every business. It's how you treat those people. It's how you make them feel comfortable and at home. Because you can provide the same services a number of different ways. But when they're done in such a way that you've told your client that they matter, that they're important, whether it's just a change in, in a brick and mortar place in the greeting room for a lawyer or an accountant. I was in the city with, with, at my accountant's office and I said, put in an espresso bar, put in some really cool couches, some big TVs. It's gonna matter. It's gonna change the way your people feel. He didn't get it at first and then he emailed me back about a week later and he goes, help us buy the stuff. I said, okay. And get some like really cool blue bottle coffee there and Stumptown coffee. Make a difference. So, yeah, I, I want to help other people take hospitality into their businesses when they're not necessarily a specific restaurant, hotel, bed and breakfast. In it's, it's how you write a letter. You know, it's, it's how you don't have 
rules and regulations, but yes, you can do all these things. Oh, and yeah, there's another thing. And if you need it, there's a PDF. And I'm sorry we had to write it, which is exactly what we'll tell people. We're sorry we wrote that. And, but there needs to be some rules for some things because there is commerce going on here and it's legal. But for the most part, no, we don't really want to do that. What we want to do is anything you ask. Yeah, no, I, I, I can really feel that. Look, um, we have to work towards wrapping things up. So I have one last question, Gary. And that is, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given that you would like to, to share in, in a final note? Yeah, in a, in a final passing to end off this interview. You have to learn the power of yes and no. They're the two most important words. And they're easily allocated to your client every time say yes. Even if there's a caveat, and as I said earlier, if it's impossible, it's gonna take me a little longer. Or, that's really expensive, but we'll do it for you. And then learn the power of no. And by that I simply mean, concentrate on your business. All kinds of distractions are gonna show up. Whether it's your buddies wanting to go to the park or out to the pub, or somebody saying you should do this business. No. Do the business you're doing. You don't want 10. You want one that's so mind-bogglingly great that everybody talks about you. Then you might think about two. So the power of yes and no is so important. Mm, that, that was brilliant. So look, I, I've had an absolute blast speaking with you, Gary. Um, I, could, I could talk to you all day, man. We just had to, we had to wrap things up. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to thank you so much taking your time to speak with me I've absolute, an absolute, absolute blast absolutely my pleasure and I'm going to send you off some directions from where you are so far away so you can find the Millhouse and you're going to come visit us <laughs> let, me know, let me know when you're in the states anywhere um, because obviously what Tony Robbins would have said is I have to walk my talk so I got to prove to you that we do this mm. well yeah look um, I do thank plan you. to come to the states so yeah no thank you so much I, I will definitely I, will de I would love to my pleasure I look forward to it and this has been a great conversation I learned from it I got I got better and I grew from it 